Let's pray together. Oh God, we come before you in this moment. God, as we turn to your word and the gospel of John, Lord, we ask that, God, you would grant us assurance of the security that is found in knowing that we are saved by you. And so, God, we come and we sit here in this moment as those who are prone to wonder and those who need to be reminded that you hold us fast and that we rest in the certain knowledge that, God, our salvation is secure in Christ and that we have a sure a strong, a certain plea before your throne because of the blood of Christ. So God, we commit this time to you and to your glory. We ask in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Would you turn with me to the Gospel of John? We in John chapter 10 this morning. John chapter 10 as we conclude our series on heaven this morning, we conclude considering what it is and what it means to have assurance of things to come. Assurance, what does it mean? Can we have assurance of things to come? As you turn, I, I would remind you of the allegorical tale of Pilgrim's Progress. Many in, in here have, have read Pilgrim's Progress. If I'm not mistaken, it is the, the most read book behind the Bible in the history of man. Pilgrim's Progress, if you haven't read it, I would recommend highly that you read it. But in, in this allegorical tale, John Bunyan tells of, of a traveler Christian on his way to the celestial city. And along the way, they are met with all sorts of trials and difficulties. And, and one such difficulty comes as Christian and his traveling companion, Hopeful, end up sleeping, and as they sleep, as they are kind of in sleep, it has its own symbolism there of not being alert, not being awake and ready and on guard, but as they sleep, they are captured by giant despair and thrown into Doubting Castle. In Doubting Castle, Christian struggles with all sorts of of doubts and shame and regret that it's my fault that we're here, and they, they go through great difficulty, great depression, brought on by giant despair. In the midst of this hopeful, true to his name in this moment, earlier it had been Christian who spoke words of encouragement, exhortation, but here hopeful, true to his name, speaks words of encouragement and hope and truth to Christian. Christian found himself in a, in a, in a very deep chasm, in a very deep spot of despair and doubt. And hopeful spoke encouragement to him. Specifically, he spoke encouragement in regards to two things in regards to one God's word and then regard to Christian's past spiritual victories that he had seen in the power and the strength of Christ as Christian and hopeful endured the time in doubting castle at the hands and the beatings and the manipulation and the the false narrative the false messages of giant despair it was on the night that they turned to the Lord in prayer that Christian was reminded that he held a key, a key called promise that would allow them to escape. 
Christian exclaimed, What a fool I've been to lie in a stinking dungeon like this when I could just as well walk free. I have a key in my pocket next to my heart called promise that will, I'm sure, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Christian realizes this. He takes the key and sure enough, it unlocks every lock in Doubting Castle. Christian and Hope, Hopeful, flee safely away from giant despair. And we gather this morning and we understand that that's an allegorical tale that Bunyan told. That Doubting Castle and giant despair are not real. Although we gather, and we gather as those who struggle through and often find ourselves in Doubting Castles find ourselves struggling against giant despair. It's very real. Despair and doubt is very real for Christians of all ages and in all points of your journey with Christ. So we gather today, and I gather, and I know that, like me, many of you struggle through this. This is a, this is a sermon, this is a passage of Scripture that God has used frequently in my life to encourage me. As I've gone through in, in my past, in my walk with Christ, I've gone through times of, of doubt, gone through times of questions. And God reminds me of his truth in this passage we look at this morning. And so I know that, that surely there are many of you sitting here today who perhaps find yourself in the midst of despair or doubts or, or you've been in them or, or you may go through them. Perhaps this despair or doubt is due to struggles with sin that you have something that you're battling over and over again, or something that you've just become entangled with. Maybe it's doubts because due to that you've backslidden. Maybe you are just now trying to come back and you're walking into church this morning and go, I don't know if I can gather or not. I'm filled with shame. Or perhaps you're one that you're not here. You're watching online because of that. You're backslidden and struggling and you just can't come. You're living in disobedience. You're in a state of despair. Perhaps, maybe it's because of a, a false understanding of who God is. Maybe you don't have a biblical understanding of the character of God and who He truly is. Or maybe you just have a doubting personality. You're one that just is filled with doubts constantly. You're rarely confident or assured of anything in life, and that includes your walk with the Lord and your salvation and things to come. Maybe it's just that You've heard incredible testimony after incredible testimony. These magnificent, life-changing experiences that people have had. And you, like me, have a quite simple testimony on your end. You're just a kid who grew up and came to faith in Christ at a young age and trying to walk with Christ now. Is your testimony less? Were you really saved? I had those doubts. It's because I was looking at myself and not God. Or maybe you're one that's just looking for some mountaintop spiritual experience to really cling to, to hold on to, to identify with. Or maybe you just don't even know. Maybe you can't explain it. Maybe there's nothing that you can pinpoint. Maybe you just sit here and say, Pastor, I, I just have all these doubts and I don't know why. I, I just want assurance and I don't know where to find it. I don't know. 
Perhaps you're just under spiritual attack. Or Satan is hurling lies at you and hurling fiery arrows at you. You're struggling. See, we gather with all sorts of reasons that we might struggle with assurance today. We might find ourselves in doubting castle and giant despair lording over us, hurling lies and insults at us. And I hope this morning as we look at John 10, it would be a moment of encouragement for us, a moment that reminds us who we should look to for assurance of things to come. I've been encouraged this week reading Thomas Brooks' work, Heaven on Earth. He, he, he writes and, and teaches that assurance is a great blessing bestowed on believers as God sanctifies us and matures us in our faith. And in his, in his book, Brooks writes this, he says, It is the very drift and design of the whole Scripture to bring souls first to an acquaintance with Christ and then to an acceptance of Christ and then to build them up in a sweet assurance of their actual interest in Christ. I love, I love Brooks' title to his book, Heaven on Earth. The reason he titled that is his premise is that the assurance of salvation is heaven on earth for the believer as we await heaven upon death. So our question this morning, our question for the sermon is this, is how can I know for sure that my portion is with God in heaven? How can I know for sure? We talked about heaven. We looked at the reality of heaven. We've looked at what we have to anticipate. We've heard the call to set our gaze on things above. But in the midst of all of that, as we come to the end, how can we be certain? How can we be sure that our portion is is with God in heaven. Let's look at the word of the Lord this morning in John 10. We'll read back. We'll start back in verse 22. Our focus will be 27 to 30, but let's begin in 22 for the sake of context. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, as with several texts we've covered in the last few weeks, this text is loaded with some really deep and rich, encouraging theology, and we can't mine it all this morning. So we want to focus in on this question of how do we know for certain that our portion is with God in heaven? How can we be assured of that truth? And we look and we see that, that in this moment, this is happening during the Feast of Dedication, it was a, an eight-day celebration that celebrated the time when Judas Maccabeus successfully delivered and, and led a revolt against uh, the, the leaders of Antiochus, Epiphanes IV, where they had come in and they'd taken over the city. They'd actually 
set up a, a pagan altar there in the temple. And so they celebrated this, and, and it was a big celebration in, in, in Israel. And here we have, in verse 24 26, this plea from the Jews to, would you stop holding us in suspense? Just tell us, are you really the Christ? Are you really the Messiah? Are you really the anointed one? And Jesus' reply is essentially two things. He says, I've already told you. And my works, they, they testify to you about me. They declare to you who I am. But yet you still don't believe. We, we have the same situation today. The same situation in which we, we have the very word of God before us. We, we have it in our possession. We can read it. We can hear the truths of God's word. We can hear the testimony of scripture. We've heard and seen and, and we know the works of the Lord. But yet some still don't believe. Yet some here in this moment, in this room, would still refuse to place your faith in Christ. Why is that? Why is it that perhaps some wouldn't believe? Why is it that you can share the gospel with somebody at work over and over and over again? They don't believe. Or perhaps another question maybe you've considered in the past. Why is it that at the crucifixion, one criminal on the left and one criminal on the right, why is it that seeing the same things, hearing the same things, witnessing the same events, that one responds in faith and one does not? Now, Jesus explains in verse 26, He said, I told you and you don't believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. And He says, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. You do not believe because you're not among my sheep. What Jesus is saying is that we are not sheep because we believe, yet, but, but instead we believe because we are sheep. Belief is based on who we are. And according to Jesus, which we need to see here, you do not believe because you're not among his sheep. In John 8, 47, he says a similar thing. He says, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So the fundamental reason for unbelief according to Christ was that they were not of God. They were not among His sheep who hear and who respond. And so that brings us to our passage today. A passage that I believe has, has three statements, three truths that give us assurance of salvation, assurance that our portion is with God in heaven. Here's the first one. How... Here's a question. You note takers, this is what you can, you can line out your notes that say this. Why do the words of Jesus in John 10, 27 to 30, why do they bring assurance of salvation? Why do they bring assurance that our portion is with God in heaven? Here's the first reason. Number one is be assured the believer hears God's voice and desires to obey. The believer hears and desires to obey. Okay? We see that in verse 27. And so if we think about this, you think about the one that, that I know, like me, you've probably been around, the one who hears the word and it just seems to bounce off, it seems to fall on deaf ears. The one who you think, well, why are you not obeying? Why are you not just following the Lord? Why is it? But according to Christ, the reason that one does not hear and believe, one does not follow, is because they're not a believer. The believer has a longing to follow and obey. 
And so the first thing I would say, and one of the challenges of this sermon, I think, is this, is to not give a false assurance. And we'll cover that in a few minutes. I don't want to give you a false assurance. So one of the things that we have to say up front is if, if you are one who hears the word of the Lord and you have no desire to obey it, you have no desire to follow Christ, you just hear it and you leave and there's nothing different, nothing different, then my friend, that should be a big, giant red flag waving saying you are not a believer. That should sound up all kinds of alarms in you saying, I don't know if I'm a, I'm a believer. I need to search this out if you have no desire to obey. And that's not something, that's not my opinion. That's the testimony of Scripture. 1 John 2.4. John, the one who wrote the gospel of John, the one who followed and, and lived life with Jesus and heard his teachings, heard his testimony, saw his life. What does he say? In his letter, 1 John 2.4, he says, Whoever says, I know him but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. He's a liar, and the truth is not in him. Again, this is not the opinion of me or any other theologian or pastor. This is the Word of God. If you say, hey, I know him, I'm a Christian, but you walk out and you live in disobedience and you live in rebellion and utter disregard to the Lord, Scripture says you're a liar. The truth is not in you. See, the call of Christ is to follow Christ, is to walk in obedience to Christ, to walk as he walked, to live as he lived. It's not legalism to say that. It's biblical Christianity. The call of Christ is not to just merely appreciate him, acknowledge him, or even agree with him. The call of Christ is to follow him and to obey him. And so the question is, does this characterize you? Does it characterize you? On the one hand, if it doesn't, then that should prevent you from having a false assurance in whatever you may say, hey, I'm counting on this, that makes me a Christian. If you say, no, I don't obey Christ at all, I don't have any willingness, any desire to follow him in obedience. If that's the case, again, there should be alarms going off in your head. However, the reason that is a, a truth of assurance is this, is because if you do have a desire to obey, you do listen. You have responded in belief. And Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. Have you responded? Do you have a longing to obey? Give a longing to follow him? It's evidence of grace, it's evidence of God's work in your life. So the first Truth, the first thing we need to look at is this desire to follow, this desire to obey the word of the Lord. Here's a second point we see in this passage. The second point is to be assured eternal life is just that. Eternal. Eternal life is just that. It is eternal. We have here a great promise from the Lord. Right? Verse 28, the beginning of verse 28, we read, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. I give them eternal life, they will never perish. John writes about this later. Then 1 John, you, you, have to, you have to understand and see that the words of Christ so impacted John and he so understood the need for assurance and the need to encourage the need for true assurance 
right? In the believer's life, that when he writes his letter in 1 John, he comes back to this. In 1 John 2.25, he says, this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. That's the promise he made to us. And then later in 1 John 5.11 and 13, he said, God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know. Not that you may question. Not that you may have a high percentage of likelihood of having eternal life. But that you would know that you have eternal life. I mean, the question you have to ask is, how can life that is eternal ever be lost or taken away? That would contradict the simple meaning of the term. It doesn't even make logical sense to say, I've given you eternal life. Oh, wait, you lost it. It wasn't eternal after all. It was partially kind of not really eternal life. Catch, fine print in white font. You didn't see it. No. He, get, he gives eternal life that cannot be lost, that cannot be taken away. You remember last week we talked about perseverance. And we talked about it's God's power to preserve that enables and strengthens us to persevere, right? We talked about that assurance and perseverance are tied together. They're knit together. As a matter of fact, a lot of, a lot of systematic theologies, if you read them, it's in one chapter. The two are dealt with together. Perseverance and assurance, they're, they're, they're really closely wed. Because here's the assurance we have. Here's the hope. Here's the, the promise. Verse 28, they will never perish. They will never perish. Those who Christ gives eternal life to will never perish, he says. Never. It's the same thing he said in John 11. You remember, some of you are here, a lot of you are here Easter, probably very few of you remember this because I, I know the reality of life. But on Easter, we looked at John 11. You remember this? John 11, the account of Lazarus where Jesus speaks and he calls forth Lazarus. Lazarus raises from the dead. But before that happens, do you remember his dialogue that he has with Martha? The question, he says to her, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes or who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks Martha, he says, do you believe this? Do you believe it? We, the, the construction there in John eleven twenty six, where he says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The same in, in the Greek, it's the same exact construction as in 1028, right? And, and I know you don't, you're like, I don't know Greek, I don't care, and that's okay. But here's why that's important for us this morning, is in the Greek, it's an emphatic double negative. No, never. No, never. Not, never. In English, I don't know where Lynn is, but to hear you say not never, Lynn's going, she's twitching, right? She's like, oh, that's a double negative. We don't like those. But he's making a point. He's, he's giving emphasis to it. So if you just literally, very wooden translation here, it will say not, no not, will perish for all time. No not, will perish for all time. Will never, ever perish eternally. And you'll note in your English translation, it doesn't say anything about for all time or eternity. But that's in the Greek. He's saying you know will never. You will never ever perish eternally. He is given eternal life. Eternal life. And you will not perish eternally. Yes, we all face death in this life. 
But Christ is victorious over death, so we know that it's not the end. That's what we've been talking about in this series. It's not the end. And the great hope, the great assurance we have is that Christ has come victorious and He gives eternal life to those who trust Him. And it is eternal. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life is a faith, a life of certainty. It's not one we go around hoping and thinking and wondering if we have eternal life. It's one of certainty that you know, John wrote, that you know, I wrote this letter, John says in 1 John, I wrote it that you would know that you have eternal life. You don't live week to week fearful of losing something. You live week to week faithfully following the one who preserves you, assured of his power and his ability to hold it. And that's our third point. The third thing we see is to be assured God is able to guard those who are his. Be assured God is able to guard those who are his. Verse 28 to 30. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Do you you see the, the strength? Do you hear that? Do you hear the confidence that this gives that God is able to guard those who are His? To believers, you are granted and you're given the utmost of confidence here that the God who saved you will keep your salvation secure. The God who saved you is able to keep it secure. Now, two of the other, there's some, a couple other big passages we think about assurance. If you just flip back, flip back to John 6. We think about this, this whole idea that God is able to guard those who are His. We look at John 6 as another important passage when we think about assurance, the assurance of believers. In John 6, verse 35, listen to what Jesus says. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have, not, that you have seen me, and yet... Do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of the one who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. You see the certainty there? Is there any question there? Is there anything that would cause you to read that and go, hmm, I don't know. I don't know if Jesus can do that. No, Jesus says, listen, you know what? All whom the Father gives me, I will lose none of. Lose none. There's certainty there. There's security there. There is assurance there. 
And listen, you, if you want to flip over there, 2 Timothy. We read this last week, and I want to read it to you again this week. And we're going to read it again at the end of the service. So heads up. 2 Timothy. When Paul begins this letter, you remember we talked about last week, this was the end of his life. And when he begins writing this letter, he's in chains. He's suffering for the gospel. And he says, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of me, brother. Don't be ashamed of our Lord. In verse 9, he says, God saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed. Now, why is Paul not ashamed? We talked about this last week. For I know, I know, Paul says, whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. It's God's great work of grace. Not our works that saves us. It's His purpose and grace that saved us. And Paul says, listen, I'm not ashamed because I know, I know in whom I've believed. And I know He is able to guard it. I know He's able to guard it. Or think about Philippians 1.6, a, a passage that, or a verse that many of you probably know, Philippians 1.6, when Paul starts writing to the Philippians. And we mention this again. We're going to mention it one more time. He writes, and what is his assurance that he says to the Philippians? He says, for I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will bring it to completion. I am sure of this. I know this, Paul says. Jesus, I will never lose. I will not lose any who the Father gives me. No one is able to pull them out of my hands. The life of the Christian is a life of security, is a life of certainty. To say that you, believer, could lose your salvation is to say that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, could not do what he said he would do in John 6. you understand that? So if you look and say, I can lose my salvation, that means you're looking at the Son of God and saying, you can't do what you said you could do. That's problematic, friends. To say that, that you could lose your salvation, that there's no certainty there, is to say that he is unable to finish what he started. It's to look at him and say, wow, you, you started a work that you couldn't finish. Now, I've started a great project in my garage, and I don't know if I get to finish it or not. <laughs> I don't know if I even am smart enough to finish it. That's not the case with God. No. Paul says, I'm certain of this, that the one who began it will bring it to completion. To say, I, I don't know, we don't have assurance of our salvation. There's no security as a believer. To say that is to say, well, you're just not able to finish what you started. It's to say that you're just not able to guard what you gave me. You gave me eternal life and you can't even guard it. Those are serious things to say. 
Friends, I don't worship a God who is unable. I don't see a God in Scripture who is unable. You read me your Bible and you show me where God is unable. You show me a God who is weak. Show me a God who can't do what He purposes to do. And He drives it home here in John 10. He drives it home twice. He says, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. And then He says, no one will snatch them out of My hand. And the Father who is greater than all, He's given them to Me and no one will snatch them. No one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I was reading this morning and just kind of devotionally reading some from James Montgomery Boyce and he describes this for you guys who are in carpentry. I think it's called cinching nails, if I'm not mistaken. But where there's a, there's a thin piece of board into another thin piece of board and you drive the nail intentionally through and it comes out the other side. And then they bend it over on the other side to cinch it in to hold it securely. And he said, here we have a, a moment where, where Jesus cinches two nails, not just one, but two, where he drives them in and says, listen, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. So he drives it in. I give you eternal life and he bends it over. You'll never perish. Then he takes another nail to secure it and he drives it in and says, no one can snatch you out of my hands. Then he bends it over and he says, the Father is even greater. He's more magnificent. He is powerful and no one can snatch you out of his hands. He cinched the nail twice. The assurance that we have in Christ is uncomparable to anything. Now, you need to note that the assurance is not that there will never be someone who will seek to harm you. The assurance is not that you will never have a doubt. The assurance is not that there will never be doubts and failures and sins and struggles. Now, the assurance is that there is nothing able to pull you out of his hands. The assurance is that God will complete the work that he started, no matter what. He will bring it to completion. This is the truth and the foundation that Paul rejoiced in in Romans 8. Do you remember that? It's, it's, the, it's the truth that we rest in. That there is nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm going to share that tomorrow at JC's funeral, Mickey. And the reason I'm going to share that is the assurance of the believer is such that that truth carries us to the end. And that assurance was so strong in J.C.'s life that the last time we read Scripture together, he wasn't talking, was he? But we read Romans 8. And at the conclusion of Romans 8, J.C. said, Amen. Why? Because our brother J.C., had the assurance that he who began a good work in him would bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And there was no one able to pull that from him. He knew and he rejoiced 
just as Paul did. Say, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Such tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? No. Paul goes on to say in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Christian life is a life of certainty and security in Christ, in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are secure in Christ. If you are in Christ, that is the key. You are secure in Christ. We have to be real though, don't we? We have to be real about the danger of false assurance. I would be remiss to fail to warn you of that. It is indeed to have, possible to have false insurance. It is in, indeed to look to the wrong things for salvation, to put your confidence in what is not able to grant you what you hope for. False assurance, I would warn you, false assurance comes from trusting your, your own works, in trusting your morality, your good deeds, your knowledge. False assurance will come from a, a false religiosity, that I, I do the right things, I'm religious, I, I go to church, I had this religious experience, I prayed this prayer. All these things that you might look back on, I, I walked this aisle, I even got baptized, whatever it is. False assurance can come from all of those things. It can come from self-pride that, that I deserve it. I mean, look at me. Look how nice of a guy I am. Look how nice and shiny my family is. Look how successful I am. I, I deserve it. I mean, how could God never, or how could God ever not allow me into heaven? All of that is false assurance. Here's what you need to know. If you seek to find insurance in anything that you have done or who you are, it will always be weak and fleeting at best. And condemning at worst. We don't find assurance in ourselves. Scripture never leads us to look at what we have done. It never looks and leads us to look to our own selves to find assurance in us. Scripture leads us to find assurance in Christ. So let me give you the source of true assurance. Or Thomas Brooks described it the springs of assurance. What springs forth? Where does assurance spring forth from? What is the source of true assurance? Well, it's found, first of all, I'll say this, as an umbrella, it's found in who God is, what God's done, and what God's promised. Do you remember the situation we began with with Christian and Hopeful? Do you remember that when Christian found himself in Pilgrim's Progress and Doubting Castle? And what is it he found? What was the key called? Do you remember? A key called Promise. He said, I had it right by my heart the whole time. And all I had to do was take that key out and unlock the locks. It was right there. 
Brooks, in his book, says this. He says, The Bible is a Christian's Magna Carta, his chief evidence for heaven. Men highly prize and carefully keep their charters, privileges, conveyances, and assurances of their lands. Shall not the saints much more highly prize and carefully keep in the closet of their hearts the precious word of God, which is to them assurance for their maintenance, deliverance, protection, confirmation, consolation, and eternal salvation? Brooks says, that that is it, the word, that's the key, that's the promise we hold dear. It's the promise because it calls us not to seek assurance in ourselves or in what we've done. It calls us to seek assurance in Christ and what he's done. It's characterized and described in three ways specifically. There's a, there's a word, full assurance, full certainty in Scripture. It's used in three passages. In Colossians 2, 2 to 3, Paul says that you would have, you'd reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and of knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then later, the, the writer of Hebrews uses the same word, Hebrews 6, 11 to 12. He says that we desire to each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Later in that chapter, that's the same chapter where, where we, we read this, it's impossible for God to lie, and then later that Jesus is our sure and steadfast anchor for our soul. Same passage. Hebrews 10.22, the word is used again. Let us draw near to God in full assurance of faith, full certainty. So full assurance of understanding, full assurance of hope, full assurance of faith, that full assurance. I love how this is, this is described. One theologian defined it this way. He said, full assurance in the Greek describes the clear-headed confidence and stability generated in believers as a result of Christ's work on their behalf. Every one of these is full assurance based on God in Christ, what he did. It's not based in self. It's based upon God. So it isn't intellectual knowledge itself that gives assurance. It is instead knowledge of the gospel, the mystery of the gospel that gives assurance, the work that God did on our behalf through Christ. That gives assurance. It's not just some, some, some faith itself that gives assurance. This is faith and faith alone. I just have faith. I'm a person of faith. Well, that's great. What, what is your faith in? It's the object of your faith that gives assurance. It's Christ that gives assurance, not just faith itself. It's not some fleeting, blind, empty hope that gives assurance. That, wow, I hope I, it works out well. I hope I have eternal life. No. It's hope in the faithfulness of of a faithful God to keep his promises. That is where hope lies that brings assurance. So if that's the case, if we are taught in Scripture to have full assurance of hope, full assurance of knowledge, full assurance of faith, if we're taught that we have eternal life, that it is a life of certainty and security as a Christian, where do we look to? Where do we look to when, like many of you and and myself, we, we come, we just struggle, and we have periods of doubt? Where do you turn? Where do you turn? The first place you need to turn is the Word of God, the promises of God. God has given us His Word. If you want assurance that your portion is with God in heaven, stop looking at self and start looking at Christ. Start counting on His promises. Promises like Romans 8, that nothing will separate you from His love. Promises like Philippians 1, that he will finish what he started. Promises like John 10, that he holds you secure in his grasp. 
Promises like Matthew 11 that he gives you rest from these legalistic strivings. Promises that, like John 10, that says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart, you will be saved. Certainty, assurance, security in Christ. In Christ. There's so many promises. We don't have time to go to all the promises. But look to the Word. If you're struggling, you're doubting, you're in despair, look to the promises of God. The second thing you look to is evidence of God's grace in your life. Do you see evidence of God's working? The believer in Christ bears fruit. John 15, 1-5 talks about that, that he who abides in Christ bears much fruit. And apart from Christ, you bear no fruit. You will bear fruit if you are a believer. And there's assurance found in that. It's, it's just affirmation, encouragement that God is working in my life. It's what John wrote about in his letter. If you're struggling, you're doubting, you want assurance, then look to 1 John. In 1 John, we have nine different indications of God's grace in our lives. You can just read through it, but John talks about how living in righteousness rather than sin is a a demonstration of God's grace in your life, that being honest with sin in our lives, keeping His commandments, loving other Christians, not loving the ways of the world, doing and speaking loving deeds and truths, believing that Jesus is the Messiah, loving God and not habitually living in sin. All of those things are evidence of God's grace in your life. You can look and say, God, it's working in me. And the final place you look to is the affirmation of the Holy Spirit within you. Scripture says, Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 2 Corinthians 1, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. God's spirit affirms within your spirit, bears witness to your spirit. You're a child of God. My prayer is that through the course of this series that our hearts and minds have been stirred to, to look above. That our gaze is cast toward heaven. That we would all be so heavenly minded that we are of tremendous earthly good. That our affections, our longings will be for Him. And as we close this series, that our security, our confidence would remain in Him who holds us fast. I want to ask you just to bow your heads this morning. Our worship team is going to come up and close us in a moment. We're going to rejoice. We're going to close this series, this time of worship this morning, rejoicing that those of us who are in Christ, we will feast in the house of Zion. We will feast in the house of Zion. We have much to look forward to. As we close, I want you to hear these words of the Lord as our closing prayer. God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not by our works, 
but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ to abolish death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. We know whom we have believed. And we are convinced that He is able to guard it until that day what has been entrusted to us. God, that's our prayer. God, that You would set our minds on things above. Oh God, that You would fill our hearts with the hope of heaven. That we would look to You, O Lord, for assurance and not ourselves. And that God, this assurance of salvation in Christ would hold us fast and secure through the many trials of life. Oh God, we worship You. And we rejoice in this moment that we will feast in the house of Zion. Oh God, you are a great God. And we long for that day that we see you shining brighter than the sun. We pray in Christ. Amen.